back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping, keeping it sports, sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm gonna do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Coming to you from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, it's time for Keeping It Sports with M3, powered by Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Good afternoon, everyone. Hope everything's going well for you here on this Monday, the 19th day of September. Hope you've all been having a great day, having a great week in what is the continuation of the longest summer vacation, as I've referred to it, in my adult life. Hopefully this week I will finally be getting back to work. I mean, they got to reopen at some point if they want to make any money, but I digress there. I've had a lot of time on my hands recently and filled a lot of that up by the continued following of Aaron Judge's path toward history, which I'll talk about today, as well as why it's extremely important for the New York Mets to win the National League East. Uh, get some thoughts on that as uh, well as we go on. But, of course, we've got to talk about uh, football today. Football, you know, once uh, September hits, usually dominates our lives for the next, oh, four to five months. And that's no different here uh, this year, especially with all the insaneness, all the craziness that has gone on in the NFL in just, Two weeks. I, I thought that the first thing I would be coming in here to talk about or the leading thing I'd be coming in here to talk about today would be the stupidity of Nathaniel Hackett from last Monday night on Monday Night Football. The fact that in Seattle, with all three timeouts remaining, he thought it was a good idea to let the clock run down to about 20 seconds and send his kicker out to attempt a 64-yard field goal attempt. I mean, maybe in Denver, Colorado, where the air is thin, that would have had a shot at easily going through. But when you're in Seattle, it's been raining in and out all game long, and you had three timeouts remaining with a quarterback that is – Known for his clutch uh, nature, his clutch uh, mindset, has been doing it his entire career. You had been gaining five or six yards um, per play all night long. And you decide to just let the clock run down, not even give uh, Russ a chance. You paid him $245 million and you're going to settle for a low percentage Field goal attempt there, I think I would have taken my chances with Russ trying to get the first down. Because even if he doesn't convert there, you still have all of it, your timeouts uh, remaining. I would have run right up to the line, 
set had a, a place set up and you know gone with there and i thought that that would have been the dumbest move of a head coach of the week but no later in the week on thursday night football brandon staley said nathaniel hackett hold my beer because what we saw him do in the second half of thursday night football was absolutely asinine through his one year and two games of experience as a head coach we've learned a couple of things so far about brandon staley we've learned that he is a risk taker and at times is not conscientious of his surroundings not conscientious of what's going on in the moment and you know sometimes things are going a little bit too fast for him the fact that you know the the chargers the scoreboard wouldn't tell you this but they were dominating this game offensively had at one point a time of possession uh control of like about 12 minutes there, especially in the first half of the game, was moving the ball up and down the field pretty well. But when you're in Kansas City, you're going up against Mahomes, and you give Andy Reid time to adjust his offense at halftime, you figure that they're going to come out with a little bit of different strategy, a little bit of a different game plan. Still, Chargers offensively, seem to have things working all night long, even without Keenan Allen um, missing this game due to the hamstring issues. And you look like you were going to charge right in there, uh, pun unintended, and have the go-ahead score there uh, midway through the second half. You know, you get uh, a great play by Gerald Everett, set you up first and goal at at Kansas City's three-yard line, and because Staley is running, you know, like 100 miles an hour, wanting to continue up with this fast, this fast tempo offense, go no huddle here, he doesn't realize that Everett is gassed. Everett needs a play, needs a play, come off, get some Gatorade, I'm sure be ready for the next time out there. And instead, he's like, no, no, stay on the field. And because of that, ever so gassed, he missed his assignment on the play, leading it wide open for uh, Jalen Watson to pick it off and take it 99 yards uh, back for a go-ahead score there. And, you know, I picked the Chargers to win this division, but I'd be lying to you if I said I wasn't a wee bit concerned uh, about them because now as great as Herbert is, he was uh, one of my top candidates for uh, uh, predictions as far as offensive player of the year is concerned. But a, he gets hit too often and B he's got a head coach that either has way too big of an ego, or as I said, is not conscientious of the moment there. I mean, you see your player 
is clearly gassed, is asking out, and you keep him on the field, and it set Herbert up to get picked off there because he he um, wasn't ready for assignment, wasn't ready for the route to run there. Not to mention then later in the game, you have Herbert uh, take a big hit, and now he's dealing with uh, some rib cartridge, cartridge injury. They're hopeful that he'll get to uh, play this week uh, against uh, the Jaguars, but uh, that remains to be seen. We won't see that until uh, the uh, middle of the week, but it was just kind of a crazy beginning to what was a crazy week too. I mean, you had some unexpected, unpredictable comeback victories yesterday. You take the Dolphins going up against uh, the Baltimore Ravens. I mean, for the first three quarters of this game, they couldn't stop Lamar Jackson. Lamar's setting records all over the place. They, You see them give up the, the opening kickoff uh, uh, to uh, Duvernay. They're down 21 entering uh, the fourth quarter, and you're thinking uh, this is uh, going to be a one-on-one start, a a bad uh, uh, loss here on the road in conference. And then all of a sudden, Tua came to life. After you know having two interceptions in the first half, he couldn't miss in the fourth quarter. Him, uh, Hill, and Waddle were picking the Baltimore Ravens uh, defense apart. And I'm watching this on the red zone. I'm like, how are they leaving Tyreek Hill so wide open downfield? I mean, back-to-back drives uh, with over 50-yard bombs to him. And it, it felt like, you know, felt like watching the Ravens, like they had you know, somewhat fallen and couldn't get up. They they almost, at, at times, you know, they're looking around at each other like, what the hell happened here? And I'll tell you what the hell happened here. Tua Tagovola ha- happened. And for, uh, you're happy for this kid because it's a, a year where it's a make-it-or-break-it kind of season for him. But now he's finally got weapons. He's finally got an offensive coach there. And in your first two weeks, you come away with a division win over a team or a franchise, excuse me, that had dominated this division for the better part of the last 20 years. I think that time has come and passed. And uh, uh, you beat a Baltimore Ravens squad where, you know, everyone knows the story behind Lamar that he's playing for a a big contract extension at the end of this year. But you would think that that kind of game is crazy enough to have that on a Sunday. But the fact that we would have two more endings like this, whether it be, you know, the Cardinals pulling off the shocker against uh, the Raiders and, you know, I don't have any fans friends that are Raider fans, but I'm sure that Raider fans are in a stunned silence uh, today because them, much like the Ravens, had this game in control, thought it was in the bag. You know, the Cardinals couldn't get out of their own way offensively. The, the, the Raiders, entering the fourth quarter yesterday, had almost 290 yards of offense. In the fourth quarter, they had about 15 yards total offense. And the Cardinals, they just 
never seemingly not had the football in, in the, that fourth quarter. And you look at the clutchness of Kyler Murray, A, with not just converting two two-point conversions, but how he's you know able to scramble around and wait for the right play. And the the first one, he's running around for about 20 seconds there. You're, you're looking at him at one point wondering, where the hell are you going? And all of a sudden, he finds daylight and is able to break it in to the left side of the end zone. And then, you know, there's no time left on the clock. He just uh, scores uh, a potential game-tying touchdown and is able to hit A.J. Green in the uh, back of the end zone. Thankfully for them, there weren't any cameras in the end zone to fully tell if Green had held on to the ball. So the referees had to stick with the call on the field. And then if you're a Raider fan... You're just, you know, you are sick to your stomach because you get the stop in in, uh, overtime. You get a a stop on fourth down when it looked like the Cardinals were going to come down and and score. You, You had not been on the field in 40 minutes of real time. But then you have Hunter Renfro fumble but recover on one play. And two plays later, uh, get the ball knocked loose on uh, the hit by Simmons that set up the Byron Murphy uh, long recovery and uh, touchdown run. The you know the the big keys here for the Cardinals were the fact that they were able to keep Devontae Adams in check. You know, he had two catches all game. He was barely even a participant in uh, this game. And you you're looking. You're paying $25 million for this. I know he was uh, targeted almost 10 times uh, yesterday, but uh, you would have figured that he would have been a bigger part of the offensive uh, game plan. And now uh, the Cardinals, they will be the ones after three quarters of looking like they're going to be off to an 0-2 start, Uh, Cliff Kingsbury being on the hot seat, Uh, Kyler Murray looking like a big buffoon, a big baby with how he was acting immature, whining, complaining about his contract during the offseason. And instead, they're sitting here uh, now preparing uh, for a division matchup against the Rams uh, next Sunday at 1-1 as well, while the Raiders are looking up with a long, tall task ahead. And of course, there was a, a third team. That made a historic comeback yesterday. And this was outright insanity, what we saw out of my New York Jets. And, you know, sometimes they say sometimes it's better to be lucky than it is to be good. Well, you saw a combination of two things for the Jets yesterday. Because, for one, I thought, you know, their defense, for the most part, played relatively well. Kept the the ground game in check for the Cleveland Browns. And we're not just letting them run up and down the field. Some of their best runs actually turned out to be, you know, uh, scrambles away by uh, Jacoby Brissett. And uh, now this had the makings of me coming in today 
sounding really whiny, sounding really complainy, uh, saying, oh, the Jets are 0-2, the season is over, now that they fought for three quarters, but like usual, same old Jets, they fell apart. No, sounding complaining about bad calls with the officials, and you know there were some uh, questionable calls, like the the holding uh, penalty called against Font at the end of the third quarter. I'm I've watched it over and over again. I'm still waiting to see where uh, that was a holding penalty on the the 25-yard run by Michael Carter that was called back there. And Jets had to settle for a field goal in that spot. But they got very fortunate in the final two minutes that the Browns, much like Nathaniel Hackett last Monday, much like uh, Brandon Staley on uh, Thursday night, had a brain cramp. No, lost complete conscientious um, idea on the situation surrounding them. Had really no clue on how, how to handle prosperity. Because you look at it, we're at the two-minute warning. The Jets have no timeouts remaining. All the Browns have to do is get a first down, and the game is over. And Nick Chubb, rather than when he converts the first down, rather than stop, take a knee, and get in victory formation. He decides to run into the end zone to try to pad his stats. And the football gods, as they sometimes tend to, looked down on the Cleveland Browns and said, no, we are not letting you win this football game today. Because from there, you had uh, uh, York miss the extra point. And then the Jets finally had some very un-Jet-like moments happen for them. Corey Davis breaks through busted coverage, uh, is wide open down the field. Flacco hits him for a 65-yard touchdown. And then on what is one of the lowest percentage plays in the NFL, they actually record, recover, excuse me, an onside kick. And I'm... Wiping my eyes, saying to myself, am I believing what I just saw here? You got uh, Justin Hardy make the tackle there, uh, keep the ball inbounds, and then uh, they're able to re- recover the onside kick. And I'm thinking, no, this is too good to be true. You know, Flacco's going to get a strip sack to some point here, going to throw an interception, but no. He continued the uh, consistent, solid play he had on the day. Uh, After a week in which myself and many other Jet fans uh, around the country were screaming, begging for Mike White to be put in there at quarterback, Flacco uh, turned back the clocks a little bit and had a phenomenal performance. And it helps when... You have some young, talented receivers around you, such as Garrett Wilson, which I think, you know, Mike LaFleur, in a uh, honest moment, will admit that he screwed up not having Garrett Wilson more part of the offensive game plan uh, in uh, week one because, you know, when he was on the field yesterday, he was phenomenal. He was fantastic, and, you know, the, now you're uh, 
looking at a kid who has a chance to be a star, who has a chance uh, to be a bright shining light for this Jets team, be an offensive piece that they have not had in years. I mean, the last time they had this kind of deep threat was probably Brandon Marshall. But Brandon Marshall, remember, you know, he was on the backside of his career at that point. He wasn't, you know, the spried young pup. He he was back in his Denver and Chicago days. And now this is a kid that you know, fell to them at the 10th overall pick in the draft and now looks like they have a great building block moving forward, a great piece him, with him, uh, Elijah Moore, uh, Brees Hall, uh, Michael Carter as your two running backs there. They look like they have some weapons here to go forward with. And even after that, Go-ahead touchdown there. I'm still thinking, oh, now somehow, some way, this is going to blow up in, in the Jets' face. But, hey, Ashton Davis, if that's the only moment that he ever gives the Jets, that interception there to end the game, so be it. And, listen, there's a, a lot of people on social media that are saying, oh, the Jets got lucky, the Browns handed the game to them. I don't give a damn. Okay, because so many times over my lifetime as a Jet fan, I've seen the Jets have embarrassing moments that the media and fans across the country like to relive, like to poke us with, like to say, oh, same old Jets with that. Like to always just rub it in our face. This is finally our chance to have you know, a day where we can sit up Stand up and be happy. Be proud of uh, what we saw. It's the first time in over 21 years that a team had come back from down by 13 or more in the final two minutes without any timeouts remaining. And ironically, that 21 years ago also happened to the Cleveland Browns. So rather than sitting here today ripping this team for an 0-2 start, ripping Robert Sala for all of his I'm-going-to-keep-receipts nonsense, talking about all those people that are ripping the Jets. I'm going to sit here. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be happy that my team is got a great victory yesterday. Look forward to playing the Cincinnati Bengals this coming Sunday. And for the next, oh, about 40, 45 minutes or so here, sit here and talk to you about what else is on my mind throughout the rest of week two, whether it be you know, teams that are off to winless starts that are in trouble, teams that are somewhat surprising me. Also, like I said before, got to mix in some thoughts about the Yankees, the Mets, talk about this uh, historic uh, home run chase that, the, that Aaron judges uh, on. And some uh, not-so-pleasant things that we'll talk about uh, a little bit later on. So, a lot to get through for the next 40, 45 minutes or so here. Glad you could join me this week. And at this time, as I tell you, each and every single week, please sit back, relax, help, put your feet up on the table if there's one in front of you. And continue keeping it sports with M3. 
I'll be back. Like I said before, I'm not going to sit here and dwell on the, fa- the fact that the Cleveland Browns are a bunch of morons. Because sometimes you got to be lucky rather than great. And I went into this game thinking that, oh, Joe Flacco gave the Jets no chance to win this game. But no good for him. He stuck it to me for once. And... Hopefully he'll stick it to me again this coming uh, Sunday going up against the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bengals who are coming in right now amongst five teams who have played at least two games this season that are winless. And of the five teams, they're the only ones that I had any real expectations for this coming during this season. And two weeks in, I don't know how as a Bengal fan you can't be concerned. Because while you haven't had any detrimental injuries to this squad, you could potentially be on the verge of one if your offensive line does not pick things up in a hurry. Because while there are many people out there that want to make the story of yesterday's game against the Cowboys about how, oh, Cooper Rush rose up and led the Cowboys uh, to a victory. Now, the real story here is the other side of the field. The fact that Joe Burrow is continually getting his ass kicked each and every single week. I mean, I thought that this was something that they addressed in the offseason, that they spent money on going and making the proper upgrades to make sure that this kid was not beaten from pillar to post once again. Last year, I believe he led the, the league in number of times that he's been sacked, well, something like over 60 times last year, and currently... He's already been sacked 13 times. That right now would put him on a pace to be sacked about 110 times over the course of this season. Now, it's one thing when you're going up against pass rushers such as the likes of last week T.J. Watt and now this week Micah Parsons. But how the hell is it a smart idea to leave your left tackle alone on an island going one-on-one with Micah Parsons. Where is that smart? Where is that, you know, even thinking wisely, especially when you have a, such an elite talent at the quarterback position as Joe Burrow. And, I know a lot of people want to make a big deal over the fact that, oh, they're 0-2, they are 
no teams have made the postseason after 0-2 starts in NFL history. But the real concern here should be with how often Burrow's getting hit because it's not like the rest of the team or the rest of the teams in this division have suddenly run and hit. The Ravens are 1-1. One one. Uh, the Cleveland Browns are 1-1. One one. The Steelers are 1-1 one one after uh, yesterday's uh, loss to the New England Patriots. So it's not like this division is just going to completely run away from them. Plus, they're going up against the Jets this Sunday. And my history as a Jet fan is that every time they have a big, unexpected victory, they let you down the following week. Now, hopefully that has changed. Hopefully uh, Robert Sala is getting off of his whole mindset of, oh, we got a whole bunch of receipts to cash in and rather is getting the, the guys focused for this coming week, realizing that they have truly not accomplished anything yet. But hey, if that offensive line for the Bengals is going to continue to play like this, the Jets definitely have a shot, definitely have a chance. You look at this pass rush. I mean, uh, Quentin Williams, I know he got a little banged up yesterday, has played as well as any defensive tackle in the sport. And, you know, the Browns talked about going into yesterday's game. That was a big concern of theirs. The Jets' defensive front, that, you know, they're rotating uh, seven, eight, sometimes even nine guys in there on uh, that defensive line, bringing a whole bunch of different looks to the table there. That, you know, if the Bengals' offensive line does not show up this week, they could put Joe Burrow uh, in a lot of trouble real quick. Now, looking at some of these other winless teams, and the Colts are clearly trying to get Frank Wright fired, even though that would be completely undeserving. I, I think, though, that what these first two weeks are, are showing, it wasn't just playing for the Atlanta Falcons. Matt Ryan looks just about done. And the fact that he's throwing three interceptions against the Jaguars, uh, misreading coverages, uh, thinking that it, that the opposition is in a cover one when it's uh, really a cover two and there's two deep safeties there. And with these interceptions that he's been throwing, he has not looked good at all this year. Now, uh, the Colts had an impact embarrassing shutout loss to the Jaguars. You realize they have not won a game on the road against Jacksonville since 2014. And that includes a game in London during that time frame. I mean, that was just atrocious. But, you know, none of these other teams that are winless so far outside of the Bengals and maybe the Colts, I had any ex expectations for coming into this year. The Titans, uh, I mean, the Texans, excuse me, uh, figured that they would be in the mix to draft the quarterback high next year. Davis Mills is not their future at quarterback. Uh, the Panthers, I got to see Baker Mayfield play well and care more about playing well rather than wanting to start fights with the media and uh, uh, shoot commercials for a progressive. And then you got the Falcons who 
they've had as much of a brain screw or a mind you know what as you could have or as you could give your fan base these first two weeks of the season. Would it be last week leading by 16 against the Saints in uh, the fourth quarter and figuring out a way to lose there in the final 10 minutes? Or yesterday looked like they were going to get ramrodded, get blown out in L.A., and then they decide to start to tease their fan base, take advantage of some of uh, the Rams' blunders, whether it be uh, Stafford's uh, uh, three uh, or a second interception there and uh, giving the uh, Falcons a great field position uh, for Mariota to drive in a touchdown. Or they get a stop. Force the Rams to get a field goal, drive down, get it within a two-score game. Then you get Lorenzo Carter blocking a punt. And the Falcons decide not just uh, settle for the extra point here. Let's go for a two-point conversion, make it a six-point game here. But they were not able to capitalize on Cooper Cup's fumble at the uh, 44-yard line. Because now the I think it was... Like two plays later, uh, Mariota got picked off at the goal line by Jalen Ramsey. And then even when they get the football back for a last-second play, uh, Mariota can't even get off a throw because he got sacked to uh, end the game there. So that's got to be a pretty frustrating uh, two weeks for Falcon fans. Thinking, first you're going to win on opening day, and you don't. And then yesterday, now I would have rather just got blown out, rather lost by 30 then waste my time and know that I was going to lose like that again. Because things like that are the ultimate tease in uh, the sports world. Now, a couple more things before I take another break here. Congratulations on the Lions getting their first victory of the year. This year, not making us wait till the month of November. There you go. Now, I said it last week. That that team plays uh, for Dan Campbell. There's something about him, as weird and wacky as he is, that he gets the best out of those guys. So I'm sure my old high school buddy, uh, Billy, is pretty happy uh, today uh, seeing his guys come away with a victory and seeing Aiden Hutchinson begin his march toward what I think will be a defensive rookie of the year kind of campaign was first three sacks uh, on the season. Uh, The uh, Packers continue to own the Chicago bears. Packers had no offense outside of the first drive and, uh, or the bears, excuse me, had no offense outside of their first drive. And Aaron Rodgers continued his ownership over the, the Bears and the city of Chicago and the Packers, you know, they've got all their veteran receivers back in there and got the game back to the way they want to uh, uh, run things. You know, having the two running back system that sets up uh, uh, plays down the field. They're not going to, you know, dash down the field and, uh, have explosive plays like they used to with uh, Devontae Adams. It's going to be a little bit here, a little bit there. Occasionally, Rodgers will break off the big throw on either a um, a busted coverage or a missed assignment that there is downfield. But 
the way they played last night with running the football and dominating on defense, that's the way they're going to have to play. And now they go into a matchup next week with a team that's kind of been their kryptonite the last uh, couple of years in the Tampa Bay Bucks, a different Buccaneers team because so far offensively, they have not looked explosive, but a Bucks team that, hey, you know, Bill Parcells once said it, you are what your record says you are. And they're amongst the 2-0 teams to start this season. It wasn't pretty against the Saints, just like it wasn't pretty against the Cowboys. Really did not get the offense going. It's funny how, you know, things that don't involve the actual game action can spark a team. Because suddenly the Buccaneers' offense woke up after the fight between Mike Evans and Marcus Lattimore, both of whom I expect to get suspended for at least a game, Lattimore for instigating the situation and leading to the benches clearing, and Mike Evans for what is, once again, an unnecessary cheap shot by him. We've seen him do this before. I, you know, the... I could be wrong about this. Maybe, you know, an hour after I record this podcast uh, later today, the NFL comes out and makes a decision about it. But my prediction on the suspensions is Marcus Lattimore is going to get one game suspension and Mike Evans is going to get a two game suspension. Because this is, like I said, this is not the first time we've seen Mike Evans do this involving Marcus Lattimore and the Saints. And the the NFL, you know, yeah, you want rivalries. Yeah, you want compelling stories. You want to bring even more eyeballs to the set uh, than you already have watching these games. But you don't want them breaking out into street fights where you're constantly having top players getting ejected from the games. So at some point, listen, we get it. Mike Evans and Marcus Lattimore cannot stand each other. It's mostly based on on the fact that Marcus Lattimore has dominated Mike Evans in these matchups, has been the one guy to truly shut him down over his career. They'll never be friends. They'll never exchange Christmas cards, never wish each other a happy birthday. But the league is going to have to have some kind of conference call and sit these guys down and say, knock the crap off. Because if it keeps escalating, if it keeps... Um, going to this point, beyond just the spirit of competition, the punishments are going to get even more severe, more worse. Like I said, I respect the fact that these two guys have this grudge, this rivalry on the field. But keep it to on the field. I don't want it getting to this where they're getting ejected from the games and we're missing out on seeing great players. Because this game... It completely fell apart on the Saints after this. Jameis Winston, after that, turned right back into the Jameis Winston. We remember him being with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, being haphazardless and careless with the ball, especially taking so many deep shots uh, that he was uh, taking. Got picked off three times in uh, the fourth quarter, each of them leading to Buccaneers scores. And, you know, that was... Uh, goodbye, good night for them. You know, wasn't pretty for the Buccaneers, but hey, they're two and zero, and they'll look to go three and zero against the Packers uh, next Sunday. 
All right, going to take another break here, come back on the other side, and I'll talk about some things that, quite frankly, were not pretty to watch this last week. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Now, probably the saddest thing I saw on week two, you know, watching these games or on the red zone was what happened to Trey Lance. And I was ready to come in here and rip him for the video that came out last week of him partying during the summer. And even though it was during the summer before the preseason, bad look for a video like that to come out after the uh, performance or lack thereof that he had in week one. But it's hard to rip the kid after... What happened yesterday, going down with a fractured right ankle in the first quarter, wiping out the rest of his season. And you got to be a little bit concerned about this kid's career now because the 49ers, they traded so many pieces to get this kid, to draft him third overall a couple of years ago. And now this is another year of no football for him because now, you look at 2020 was almost completely wiped out. He played like one game for uh, North Dakota State, but their season was completely wiped out due to COVID. Then last year, he made one start in place of Garoppolo, but otherwise was kind of brought in on a few packages here and there to get his feet wet in the league, but did not play much. This was supposed to be his year. This was supposed to be his you know, time to step in as the starting quarterback, even as questionable as that is when you have a roster around him, especially on the defensive end, that looks like it's ready to compete for and possibly win a championship to go with a quarterback that was so raw like that, a questionable decision, but now he's going to spend almost a full year rehabbing from this, trying to get right by next summer when OTAs begin. 
takes away uh, from some practice time, from some useful reps that he was going to get as he continues his progression on hopefully for his sake and for the 49ers sake being their long-term answer at quarterback here the the only positive thing that happened for the 49ers out of all of this is that Jimmy Garoppolo is still there they did not trade him otherwise you're looking at this and you're a 49er fan you're wondering oh god we're we've got you know, a bunch of guys that look like they're going to be working at Walmart soon here as our quarterback. Going to be wasting uh, years for Bosa and the rest of that defense. Wasting a, a year of Debo Samuels uh, after he just signed that big contract extension. But what Garoppolo will do, while it, it's not going to light up the scoreboard, it's not going to light up stat sheets, you're not going to win your fantasy league because of G- Jimmy Garoppolo. He is what he is. He's a steadying presence out there at quarterback. He's a guy that has won about 75% of his starts in his career. Yes, there's been some uh, health issues over time. But he's mo- he's played a large percentage of the games that he's been uh, potentially available for. And right now, probably gives this Niners team its best chance at competing. Its best chance at you know making the uh, postseason and being any sort of threat to the Los Angeles Rams. I remember, they came within a quarter of winning a Super Bowl with Jimmy Garoppolo as their quarterback. They came within a quarter of beating the Rams and going back to another Super Bowl. It's not like this guy is just some bum, some guy that can't play. He's not elite. No one's ever going to argue him him being that. And he's probably not going to have a lot of insane offers as a free agent this coming off season, especially if you believe how big this draft class could be in quarterbacks. But he's a solid presence at the quarterback position. A guy who's been there, done that, and going to give the 49ers at least a chance to win on a week-in, week-out basis. And I was hopeful that the, the Trey Lance injury would be the worst thing to talk about this week. I was hopeful that you know that would be the only you know really ugly thing to talk about in uh, this week in the sports world. But unfortunately, that's not the most disgusting thing I saw. There were more despicable things done off the field, off the, the, the court that, you know, just shake, make you shake your head, make you wonder what the hell people are thinking. And, and two people I'm outright disgusted in, two people who are just outright sick human beings, that being the, the owner of both the Phoenix Sun and Phoenix Mercury of the WNBA, Robert Sutterver. And, of course, NFL legend Brett Favre. We'll start with Robert Sarver, who we had known for some time that 
there was an independent investigation being conducted on the workplace environment involving the Phoenix Sun and to some degree uh, the Phoenix Mercury. And that there were uh, past employers uh, who had accused Sarver and members of the front office of racism, uh, sexual harassment, uh, of misogyny, you know, just all around uh, to disturbing uh, things, including various times of, to me, the most disgusting word in uh, the English language, if you want to call it that, the N-bomb being dropped. And uh, this, the, finally, uh, after an investigation was done, after the initial report came out, uh, where there were, you know, at least 70 uh, current or past employers that uh, were investigated in uh, this. The independent investigation determined that he did use the N-word on at least five separate occasions in public. Uh, uh, four of those being told uh, by subordinates that he should not use. He sexually harassed and assaulted multiple uh, um male or female employees or you know overlooked that happening in uh his company maybe not him directly all of those times but there were occasions where he overlooked other employees doing that and engaged in demeaning behavior toward uh employees and all of that you would think would stand grounds for him to lose the franchise, for him to be kicked out of the NBA. But I think Adam Silver really dropped the ball here with the punishment, only fining him the maximum of $10 million and giving him a one-year suspension. I mean, $10 million is chump change, says guy. And what is one-year suspension going to really do? Unless he's going through a lot of sensitivity training, counseling during that year. Even that, to me, is not good enough for him to justify keeping him as the owner of these franchises. I, I've always respected the fact that Adam Silver, when he came in as the commissioner, had you know, a very difficult task thrown at his feet almost immediately, and that was how to handle the uh, Donald Sterling situation. And right away, without, without hesitating, within 24 hours of that video coming out from his girlfriend with all the uh, racist and uh, sexually disgusting things in there, he kicked him out of the NBA and forced immediately forced the sale of the Los Angeles Clippers. But why aren't you doing the same with this guy? Is it because of the fact that there's no video of it? Is it the, the fact that the, the public can't see this? Because what people forget about the Donald Starling situation, pressure was also put on Adam Silver and the owners across the league because that happened right before the start of the NBA playoffs. 
I remember you had significant players across the league that were coming out and threatening boycotting playing in playoff games until uh, Sterling was kicked out of the league. So that forced Adam Silver and the owner's hands back then. Is it because this is happening during before even the preseason begins? I, could you see a situation now? Because I know we've seen in the last week one of the minority owners of the Phoenix Suns come out and and request that Sarver step down, resign, and sell the team. We've seen uh, one of the uh, top executive directors in the NBA Players Association, uh, uh, Tremica uh, Tremeglio, uh, come out and call for a lifetime ban of Sarver. But is it because we didn't see it that he's not doing this? Or is it because pressure has not been put on the league yet? Because if you have a situation where, say, players boycott games, maybe that puts pressure on them. Or you're starting to hear rumblings that advertisers are telling the Phoenix Suns and the NBA that once their deals are up, they're done. They're not making another deal with the NBA because they don't want to associate with them as long as this guy is part of the league. So is that the pressure that it's going to take? Because you know I've seen the comments by LeBron James and Chris Paul, and while all of that is good, it feels like the league is not going to do anything to the severity that they should until pressure is truly put on them. And we'll see if you know LeBron, CP3, any other player has the goal to do that, stand behind uh, their words, stand to their convictions, and do what it takes to get this guy kicked out of the NBA as he should. I talk about disgusting human beings. How about Brett Favre? Are you freaking kidding me with this? The, this report that's come out that Brett Favre's been involved in a welfare uh, scheme where a, a text messages were revealed between him, the former governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, and a nonprofit leader, uh, Nancy New, revealing that there were uh, um, multiple welfare scandals that saw millions of funds meant for poor families in Mississippi instead go to wealthy celebrities, including Brett Favre, who was able to so- secure over $6 million dollars in welfare funds for a volleyball stadium on the campus of the college that his daughter plays for. Like, how do you live with yourself if you're a person like this? Taking money that's meant for the poor, especially in one of the poorest states in this country, a state that's dealing with a drought right now, that they're looking for any way that they can to increase their water supply. But instead, this guy is getting money f- from that's meant for better purposes to use on a um, volleyball stadium. 
And this is not, it's not like this is the first time that Brett Favre has ever done something scumbagish. I remember there was, during his playing career, a couple of instances where A, he was temporarily banned by the league in the late 90s um, after he admitted to uh, uh, being addicted to Vicodin. And you, th- you thought and you hoped that that would be the worst thing that happened during his playing career, but no. Then there was uh, the year uh, when he was with the Jets where it would come out later that he was allegedly sexting and leaving inappropriate voice messages for uh, a game day host of uh, the Jets. And even though he was not found to be uh, guilty of violating the NFL's uh, personal conduct policy, he was still fined 50 grand for failing to cooperate in the investigation. Then just a couple of years ago, there came out a report that auditors uh, un- uncovered payments totaling $1.1 million of money to Brett Favre's company for two separate speaking appearances that he was supposed to make. And he never made them. I'm guessing it, maybe they got canceled due to COVID. But then how do you keep the money if you're not making the speaking appearances? So all the way around, Brett Favre... He just, as the years go on, he's gone from the guy in the Haynes commercials uh, and that was a legendary quarterback that, you know, John, the late great John Madden was in love with because of his childish enthusiasm for playing the game to being one of the biggest scumbags in not just all of sports, but in all of society. I don't care where you sit Politically, religiously, ethnically, there's no way anyone can look at Brett Favre right now and say that he is any form of a good human being. Because this is outright disgusting and hopefully he faces some severe, and I mean extremely severe legal charges for this. Taking $6 million from the needy. Please, you made... Over $130 million during your playing career. You'd think he would have the money, but no. He's got to go steal from the poor just for a freaking volleyball stadium. Outright disgusting. I'm going to calm down, take a break here, come back and finish up uh, the podcast for this week. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. The stat that I'm about to tell you, or the fact that I'm about to talk about here. When I first heard this yesterday, quite frankly, I could not believe it. You guys realize that yesterday was the first time since September 27th of 2009 that the Jets, the Giants, the Mets, and the Yankees all won on the same day. 
You would think over 13 years, it shows how bad the football teams have been here, how inconsistent the, uh, the Mets have been over time. But it shows over 13 years that you would have figured one time that these um, four franchises won on the same day. And for the Jets, now it's the first time that they won a game in September since 2018. But hey, they're, they're not the only football fan base that's in a positive mindset of positive vibes today. I mean, the Giants are 2-0. and And while it hasn't been pretty to get to 2-0, and you don't apologize about victories. You know, the, yesterday, the offense, especially from Saquon Barkley, kind of calmed down a little bit. It was more on the defense uh, to win this game. And they did that. Now, the the Panthers were careless with the football in the first quarter, fumbled on each of their first two drives, and were very lucky to get the Giants to settle for field goals on both of those. But after that initial drive in the uh, third quarter with DJ Moore's touchdown, the Panthers' offense did nothing, held in check for the rest of the game. Mayfield was awful. They couldn't convert a third down to save their life. And you know, after what was a really good first half from Christian McCaffrey, we're not able to get him involved enough to have a meaningful impact in uh, this game. And the, the best thing I think you look at with the Giants is not just the way the defense uh, played, but also the fact that you did not have the defense put at risk of having to break at any point in the fourth quarter, meaning there were no boneheaded, poorly timed turnovers by Daniel Jones. He was very careful with uh, the football yesterday and you know, was just a passenger along for the ride on the, the victory. And you look at now the Giants, the next two games for them are very winnable. They got the Cowboys coming in on Monday night next week. We'll see if Cooper Rush and company can play that well um, a second week in a row. Although a lot of yesterday's win, you got to credit to the domination of Micah Parsons. So hopefully the Giants realize that maybe we should throw at least a a second guy at him and not leave our left tackle on an island against him. And then the week after that, you go play the Bears. So there's... At least a chance for the Giants at minimum. At minimum, we should be sitting here two weeks from now talking about the Giants at 3-1. and one. And then, you know, who knows? Because the NFC, quite frankly, I know it's early, looks wide open. I'm not saying that the Giants are going to win the division or anything because got to see when Dak comes back, see how the Eagles continue uh, to progress. But why can't they be that surprise team that we always talk about each and every season that just comes out of nowhere and does great things? Now, on to the baseball where both the Yankees and the Mets have hit the final stretch here. And you look at the Mets, it was very important that they swept the Pirates this weekend. Took care of business, especially after... 
what was a dreadful series against the Chicago Cubs. And whether it be not being able to get a hit with runners in scoring position, having to settle for a lone home run uh, by Alonzo on Tuesday night, and then Peterson really driving you out of the game uh, before you could sit down. And the thing about it is the bullpen came in after him, led by uh, Trevor Williams, and did a good job. Gave them a chance to come back in the game. Gave them a chance to uh, try to make a game out of it. And they were never able to complete the comeback. And you can't have your first sweep of the year be at home to a team like the Cubs you know, just playing out the string, especially when it's important for you to win the division. So I thought it was imperative for them to sweep the Pirates this weekend, especially because you got no help from uh, the Phillies going up against the Braves in Atlanta. And you know, why it's so important for the Mets to win this division, it's very clear. Because you want to avoid facing the juggernaut known as the Los Angeles Dodgers until at least the NLCS. You're the wild card in all likelihood that make you'll be, you know, the, what, five, four seed? And you could uh, potentially have to face them in the, the division series. Uh, I think that they're going to reseed uh, if... You know, the, the Dodgers will get the lowest uh, possible seed in uh, the second round. It's not just going to be uh, the uh, the three or the six automatically. The three, six automatically plays the one and the four, five automatically plays the two. I believe it's the lowest possible seed. But you want to avoid playing the Dodgers until the NLCS, if at all possible. Plus... You get uh, the division and make sure that you hold off the Cardinals who are charging uh, hard for the the number two seed. But you get that first round by, it allows you to line up your pitching rotation for your advantage in the postseason. You would much rather have the trio of Scherzer, DeGrom, Bassett starting the division series rather than having to use those guys to get through the wild card series. And then if you get past that, you're having to play either the Braves or the Dodgers in the next round and starting it with either Taiwan Walker or Carlos Carrasco. That that would put you at a big disadvantage, not able to get you know DeGrom or Scherzer back out on the mound until game three at the earliest. Plus, you got to, like, like, five days off or something like that after the end of the regular season as uh, the wild card round is going on. And the Mets could use that time off, not just with lining up their pitching staff, but Lindor and Alonzo so far have each played 147 of a possible 448 games. I get they like to play every day and you know, that they're really the only offense that the Mets have had at times. Even though McNeil has gotten hot recently, the, you've not gotten a lot out of any of these guys you traded for at the deadline. You've had guys in and out of the lineup due to injury. 
But the last couple of weeks, Lindor and Alonso have just looked exhausted. So you go into this week now where you've got a six-game road trip here. Three at the Brewers, and then you go out west for three games against the A's, who, you know, they have nothing to play for, but we saw a month ago that they were able to figure out a way to split a four-game series with the Yankees as their offense was going through problems. Meanwhile, the Braves, six of their next 10 games are up against the Washington Nationals. You need to make sure that not only you're still leading the division at the end of the day, but leading the division when you go into that Braves series. So that, oh, you take you know two out of three there, and then you can lock up the division in uh, that series. It is of the utmost importance that the Mets win the NL East and not just settle for the wild card. Otherwise, they're going nowhere in October. And the Yankees are getting closer and closer to locking things up for the AL East. I know, you know, the, the Blue Jays have been charging hard this month, have gotten a lot of games against the Orioles backloaded on their schedule as the Orioles begin to uh, fade out of things. But the Yankees have been able to somewhat hold serve. Every time you think that they're about to, to leak a little bit, get that win to ease everybody's nerves uh, when it comes to uh, the division lead that at one point was 15 and a half, now sits here at five and a half over the Toronto Blue Jays. But I do think they will lock things up, especially when you look at what they got coming up this week. A six-game homestand uh, with two starting tomorrow night against the Pirates and then four against the Red Sox. And of course, what we're going to be watching for over these six games is Aaron Judge. Because now what he's done on this road trip with four home runs over his last five games has put him in a spot where the next week at Yankee Stadium is going to be insane. Even for games against the Pirates during weeknights with school starting, I would expect sellouts these these next two games. You know they're going to sell out the games against the Red Sox. There's not going to be a seat to be had in those games. We are on the verge of history here, people. It has been a long time. 61 years since a New York Yankee had hit 60 home runs. Ever since that legendary historic season by Roger Maris, 61 in 61. We have not seen a New York Yankee hit 61 home runs. Hell, we haven't seen a player in the American League hit 60 home runs since then. So now he's not just going for a Yankee record, he's going for the American League record. And, you know, depending on what you believe, possibly the big league record. That's up for everyone's own uh, determination. But these are the pitching staffs to do it against. And every at-bat, you're going to see the entire stadium rise as one with their cameras out. Because the next home run is number 60. The home run after that is the tire against Maris. And then after that is 
the record breaker. And I firmly expect, unless something unforeseen happens, which pray to the baseball gods and the gods above that nothing unfortunate happens. There's no rainouts, nothing, anything like that over this next week. That I'm going to be coming in here this time next week and celebrating Aaron Judge making history. These are the pitching staffs to do it against. He has been on fire. He has set himself on. He's been not just on a pace where he's going to break records this year, but he has a chance at being the first American League Triple Crown in a decade since Miguel Cabrera did it with the Tigers. It's He's one point back in the batting average race. He's blown away the entire competition in home runs. He's like, more than 20 home runs ahead of the next closest guy. He's got at least a 15 RBI edge on Jose Ramirez when it comes to runs batted in. I don't know how. I I honestly don't know how. There is anybody in the media, fans on social media, trying to argue that it is even remotely close between him and Shohei Otani for the MVP award. I don't care that Otani can both hit and pitch. It's fun, it's cute, it's unique. But when you're doing it for a last place team that would be god awful with you as well as they would be without you. I'm sorry, you would have to absolutely blow away the competition to win the MVP award. Judge, there is not an offensive category in which Judge is not dominating Otani. And he has been playing gold glove caliber defense, not just in his normal right field, but also in center field. Case closed. If you're still picking Otani, you're just a either a Yankee hater or overrating a narrative that the media wants out there. Because let's not forget, Otani doesn't pitch once every five days and play the outfield in between it. He pitches once a week, usually on either Saturday or Sunday, and then DHs four days in between. It's not like he's wearing himself out every single day. So let, let's stop with this idea, because if we're going to keep doing this, where, oh, every year Otani is um, able to pitch and hit at a high level, why even have the MVP? Just gift wrap it to him at the start of the season. This is history, what we're seeing here, people. We may never see another season like what Aaron Judge is doing ever again. And it better not, better not be robbed of his rightful place as the 2022 American League MVP. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 from Monday, September 19th, 2022. Please, everyone have a great night, a great rest of your week. I hope you all enjoyed Monday Night Football. And I'll talk to you guys again, same time, next week. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya?
I don't want to see you, I don't want to hear you, and I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.